we're delighted to be here again this morning. Appreciate all of you that come out to worship with us. We always do ask continued interest in your prayers as we stand before you. We've been going through a study of characters from the Old Testament. Our premise started in uh, Luke chapter 11, when Jesus discussed the issue with them of a strong man armed. Which of you, being a strong man, your goods are in peace as long as you're the strongest one around. But when a stronger than you comes along, he binds you, spoils your goods, takes over your house. The obvious illustration or the first illustration uh, that Jesus is teaching here in Luke 11 uh, is that he has the power with the finger of God to cast out devils. Therefore, he is the strongest man. And the man who thought he was strong is the devil who is bound. However, we make application in our own life as we read God's word that sometimes we think we're the strongest one. Sometimes we <clears throat> feel like maybe we've progressed to a position of holiness uh, in our life or perhaps we have progressed to a position of spiritual strength in our life and we're able to sort of tackle life on our own without any help. And yet the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, let no man think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Uh, who we are as Christians, the fact that we have the ability to believe, is not within the power of our wisdom and our understanding. Who we are as Christians, Paul says, as I am that I am, by the grace of God. I understand what I understand by the grace of God. I know who God is. I know who Jesus is. I believe in them. And I believe because the power of God is in us. This is not something we've come up with on our own. The preacher didn't preach so simple that a child could understand it. It took the Holy Spirit and his quickening power to open our hearts and open our minds to the understanding of the things in God's Word. Paul will remind us in Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We're not strong in our power. We're not confident in us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would go on to say in another place, we have no confidence in the flesh. Sometimes my children will say to me, well, why can't I do something? Don't you trust me? It's not you that I have a problem with. It's your flesh I don't trust. Because I don't trust my own flesh. Paul himself would say, in Romans chapter 7, he says, when I would do good, evil is present with me. And he says that I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the desire to do that which is good sometimes does dwell within us, but the ability to accomplish that Paul says, I cannot find. He says, there's a constant warring in my members uh, between the spirit that lives in me and the flesh that I have because I live in a sin-cursed earth. So we looked at Adam. Adam was the first creation from God. And yet when Adam went up against the devil, Adam fell. Uh, we then looked uh, at Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God. 
Adam walked with God. Abraham was the friend of God. And yet we saw some of the problems and pitfalls that Abraham went through. Abraham, the father of the faithful and the friend of God, was a mess of a liar. Then you look at Moses. Moses was called the meekest man of any man on the earth at that time. And yet Moses had problems sometimes with anger and with frustrations. Come today to a wonderful character named David. David is a great character in the Old Testament. There is much of David's life that we all would like to imitate. If you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 13, uh, there's a phrase that's found here that's repeated uh, time and time again uh, concerning David. that most people know about him. Uh, you remember when uh, Samuel the prophet, 1 Samuel 16, was sent to uh, Jesse's house to anoint the next king in Israel. And Jesse parades out in front of Samuel, uh, his oldest son. And Samuel hears from the Lord. The Lord tells Samuel, he's not the one, there's another. Jesse and Samuel both kind of look at this from a natural human standpoint. Uh, Eliab the oldest, when Samuel saw him, thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord whispers to him and says, he's not mine. You're judging by the outward appearance, but I judge on the inward appearance. And, and Samuel goes through all of Jesse's sons, or well, he goes through seven of them, and he says, none of these are it. Have I come to the right place? And the Lord says, there's one more. And he asked Jesse, is, is there not another son? Well, there's, there's one more son, the youngest, but he's out in the field tending sheep. Surely he can't be the one. Samuel says, send and fetch for him and bring him here. And when he stands before him, the Lord whispers in Samuel's ear, this is mine anointed. Anoint this man with oil. And we find here in Acts 13 the record that is given it says in Acts 13 and verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. At a young, early age, this title is placed on David, a man after God's own heart. Uh, sometimes it takes many years for us to observe a person uh, to see their connection with the Lord. And sometimes it's not until later years in life does a person become to maturity to realize that the best thing in your life is to have a heart after God. You can pursue anything you want to in this world, and all of it will come to nothing. But to pursue Christ, which really that is what discipleship is. Discipleship is one person placing Christ as the mark and moving toward it. That's essentially what discipleship is. That they look at everything, they observe everything in their life, and they observe it from this standpoint. What does Christ think about? 
It's not really any harder than that. Well, it's not any harder to say that. When Paul was struck down on the Damascus Road, his his first question was, who art thou? Uh, every generation itself needs to discover who God is. They, they need to really understand properly who God is. Second question Paul said, what would thou have me to do? Until those two questions are answered in a person's life, they've really not even started out in the path of discipleship. You know, when we, when, we, when we ended with Moses last week, what did we notice about Moses striking the rock the second time that was the problem? Forty years prior to this, Moses struck the rock and water came out. This time, Moses was to speak to the rock and water would come out. There was a pattern 40 years ago that was not to be applied today, is, is what we learned about that. You say, well, what does that have to do with us? Until someone sees that Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, they're really not worthy to proclaim the name of Christ. Until you see that everything in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Christ, you're not truly going to understand the work of Christ on the cross. Every generation needs to answer, needs to have answered for them, who is the Lord? And what would He have me to do? And I think if you are honest with yourselves, if we observe our culture around us, there's a lot of people who really don't know who the Lord is. There's a lot of crazy ideas out there about who and what God is and what he would have us to do. And most of them are wrong. And and if you want a biblical example of that, Matthew 16 gives a biblical example of that when Jesus looked at Peter and he says, who do men say that I am? Let's answer this question. Who am I? And Peter and some of the disciples say, well, some say thou art Elias, or some say thou art Jeremiah, come back from the dead, or some say thou art John the Baptist, or some think you're one of the prophets, we're not sure who you are. So we got Elias, we got Jeremiah, we got John the Baptist, and, and then a fourth group is not sure what it is. So four of the groups think he's somebody else other than really who he is. And have you ever noticed in not only American culture, but world culture, everybody and everything gets to be God except God. Every idea gets to be right except God's ideas. Every idea, every path gets to be the right pathway except God's pathway. And then Jesus looked at Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He's got that answer right. But Peter never quite came across to the answer of what would thou have me to do because, you know, Peter was impetuous. Peter always got ahead of the Lord. Peter, when the Lord said, I would be delivered into the hands of wicked men and crucified and slain, he said, not so, Lord, though all men forsake thee, I will never leave thee. He was too busy telling God what he was going to do for him instead of asking God, what are you going to do? 
what would you have me to do? David, in his earliest of age, was a man after God's own heart. Um, now, I'm going, I'm going to give David uh, a little bit of mercy in this. Uh, because there, there comes a point in your life when your world is really, really small, that answers are really simple. When you're young and your world is really small, life is really simple. When you break out into life and you get a career and you get a family and you end up with more month than you have money and you have bills and you have anxieties and you have things that just don't match anymore and you really start looking at the world as a whole, our injustice system that's out there and this, that, and the other, things are not as simple as they used to be. And life has a tendency to just really kind of wear you down sometimes. Because we, we live by faith, right? We're, we're taught that if you just trust the Lord, everything will work out, right? And then sometimes it doesn't work out the way we thought it should. Are you going to give up? Are you going to be faithful? One thing to be faithful for six weeks or ten months. It's another thing to be like Abraham who had to wait 20 years before God gave him the promised son. And in the period of that 20 years of him waiting and waiting and waiting, that's how he and Sarah devised their own plan to help God out and, and solve the problem. Real easy to say I'm patient. It's a whole lot harder to demonstrate patience on a regular daily basis. So I'm going to give David a, a, a little bit of mercy in this. That David is a young person at this time. And I appreciate the fact that he is a man after God's own heart. Every one of us should be a person after God's own heart. Every one of us should have the desire in our life to be like God and want to do what God would have us to do. David, this sweet singer of Israel, writes some of the most blessed psalms in the Bible. Go outside of the primitive Baptist to any other denomination that's out there and go to a funeral. And I guarantee you that 90%, probably 99% of the funerals that you're going to hear out there, they're going to quote at least one psalm. Does anybody know which psalm that might be? Huh? 23rd Psalm. Every single time. Uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about the jobs that I have, uh, being in lawn care, I met a lot of different people. And it wasn't the lawn care that I enjoyed the most. It was meeting people. The, the furniture company I work for now, we install furniture. We, we install furniture in, in people's houses sometimes. I get to go into the office of the president of the company. Can you do that? 
We get to walk right into the office of the president, put furniture in there. We've just installed uh, furniture for the Trustful Police Department up on Deerfoot. They bought the old sheepdog shooting range, and now they're in there. And we get to walk in there, and we walk through the whole building. We got a tour of the whole building. The kids got to go in there and walk through the shooting range and see all that. Normal people can't do that, right? God has blessed me to be in wonderful places and meet wonderful people. And what I'm saying about this is, is during my time, I've had the opportunity or the privilege to preach funerals for people who are not necessarily primitive Baptists. And in, every time I've sat down with any of their family members to say, is there anything you'd like for me to say, without exception, it's always been, I'll just read the 23rd Psalm. Well, we know more about the Bible than the 23rd Psalm. But the 23rd Psalm is a beautiful it's a beautiful psalm. As a matter of fact, 22, 23, and 24 of the psalms uh, tell a, a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. David was the man who had the privilege to write that. David was a man who had the privilege of hearing or writing Psalm 89. Turn with me to Psalm 89. This kind of also goes back to the anointing uh, of the time when Samuel anointed him in 1 Samuel 16. Psalm 89, and we'd like to begin with verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. My faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also will I make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Now, we want to stop right there. Here's the term firstborn. David was not the firstborn in his family. He was the eighth child of that relationship. So people need to understand that when they read the term firstborn, it doesn't have much to do with birth. It has to do with authority and rank. As Jesus Christ is described as the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he's the first one come out of the grave, body, soul, and spirit, and ascended back to heaven in a pure, glorified body there to stand in God's presence for us. David was a man whom God would use to typify and pattern the Lord Jesus Christ. What if somebody could say that about you? What if somebody could say about you or me? You know, you know, you know what I like about you the most? The thing I like about you the most is I see Christ in a lot of the things that you do. Well, don't that scare you to death? Listen to what's fixing to be said, though. Everything, though, that's fixing to be said can be paralleled 
to the, to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to keep that in mind. These men of the Old Testament oftentimes were types or shadows. They were figures of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you saw about them, you could parallel or apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't forget, don't over-spiritualize this and think this only applies to Christ. These were physical, real things that happened to real people. Listen to what he says. Verse 28. This is Psalm 89, beginning with verse 28. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes, and keep not my commandments. Then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Let's pause there for a minute. Of all the good that we can see about David in his life, David's house was a mess, wasn't it? His children fighting with each other and taking advantage of their half-sisters David had what? At least three wives? Maybe four? What a mess. David had a problem. He had a house that was constantly at war with itself. The one thing that we know about David when we observe his life is his sin with Bathsheba in First. Second uh, Samuel 12. That's not the sin we're going to talk about today. Because in David's life, there were at least two instances where God was righteously angry with this individual. The first one is the sin of Bathsheba in Second Samuel 12. And from that sin brought the death of four of David's sons. If his children forsake not my forsake my laws and walk not in my judgment, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. David uh, should have taken a better hand, say, dealing with Absalom. Uh, when Absalom died, the phrase is written in the Bible: "Oh Absalom, oh Absalom, would to God I could have died for you." We have a hymn in our hymn book written on that. The problem with that is that if David had a mourned for Tamar in the beginning of the issue in the way that he mourned for Absalom, he probably wouldn't have had to have mourned for Absalom. You say, well, David should have done more to control Absalom and Amnon and all the rest of them. That is true. However, they were grown people. They were grown adults capable of viewing a situation themselves and realizing this is not the right thing to do. So though David himself did not harness his family the way he ought to, God says, I'll deal with the family myself and I will visit their transgressions with the rod. And he did. You may look at your own family. You may look at your own life. 
and they say, things haven't worked out the way I thought it would. Things haven't worked out the way I wanted it to. Does God really love me? People are constantly measuring the love of God based on the events in life around them. They're constantly measuring God's love based on the house they live in, the car they drive, the job they have, the money in the bank, food in the refrigerator, things like that. People are constantly doing that. Because you, you see this all the time yourself, driving up and down the street, fancy cars with tag plate, blessed. I'm blessed of God through this. Well, God may have blessed you with that. I certainly will not kick off on that. I'll certainly not degrade that. However, the love of God for you is not to be measured necessarily by the things that you possess in life. The love of God for you is to be measured by the fact that God said, I love you and gave himself for you. That's the greatest determination in whether or not God loves you. It's not how many friends you have. It's not how many likes you get on a Facebook post. It's not how many people visit our Instagram page. Whether or not God loves you is determined by God Himself. If you were sitting on David's throne and you saw what David saw, That his children forsook the law, they walked not in judgments, they broke the statutes, and they kept not God's commandments. What would you say to yourself? Why me? Why us? Look at the very next phrase. Verse 33, God says, nevertheless. We've pointed out time and time again that God is the God of nevertheless. Go home and get your concordance out when you get when you get home and, and do a quick study on the term nevertheless and find out how many times it's connected with God. And what, what you need to understand and what you're going to find out about this is when you and I get to heaven, God is probably going to be greater than you ever imagined Him to be. But I guarantee you this, He's nevertheless. So that's what it means. Whatever you think, it's never less than this right here. My loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. Remember that passage in Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, talking about the promise of God. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, there's a wonderful statement here. Uh, this is kind of one of those issues and one of those areas where I think that a, a multitude of people really don't understand who God is. There are many preachers who fill pulpits today, and they want to tell you that God really, really wants you to be saved. He, he really wants you to be in heaven. But He's not going to do any more than He has to. 
He's done what he considers to be sufficient enough. And if you'll just accept him, you'll be saved. Now, my question to that always is, but I've always had this question. If God wants me to be saved, and yet I'm just not convinced to get saved, does God know? Does God know what it would take for me to be convinced? Is that a, is that a reasonable question? I mean, if you're confused about an issue, don't you try and find the simplest way to convey this to somebody? Doesn't God have the ability to find the easiest and simplest way to convey this to you? If you're still not convinced after God gets done talking to you, either His explanation is not simple enough, or you're just too stubborn for God to get through to. My question is, does God know what it takes to convince anybody to do anything? Yes. So then if He knows what it takes to convince you to do something, and you haven't done it yet, has He not done it yet? If He wants everybody to be saved, why doesn't He just convince them in the simplest manner to do what He wants them to do? It's not about you. What people don't get is it's not about you. And it seems to be that God, in most people's mind, is more willing for His will to be thwarted in your life eternally than His sovereignty to be established. Let's notice Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 and verse 17. He says, what, what did we start, start with? In, uh, in, in Psalm 89, God said, uh, Once have I sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. That's, that's, where, that's how we got here. Hebrews 6.17 says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly, to show under the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by another. See, there's something that God is more concerned about. He's more concerned about His holiness. He's more concerned about the unchangeableness of His counsel. He confirmed something by an oath. And notice what He did. He was more willing abundantly to show to who? The heirs of promise. People whom Christ died for who will find themselves in heaven are not holy people that God just had to save because they were so holy. They're heirs of promise. They're not people who were easily convinced. They're not people who decided to help God out. They're not people who decided to accept Christ. They are called heirs of promise. And so God more willing to declare and show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. These two things are His unchangeable counsel and His unbreakable oath. God made a promise. It cannot be broken. God counseled within Himself to do this, and he needed no greater counsel than himself to do a thing. He confirmed it 
by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who, uh, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. It's impossible for God to lie to us about our eternal destiny. Therefore, when David looks out at his kingdom around him that's falling apart day by day, he might have the thought within himself just like you might have the thought within yourself. Has God clean gone forever? Has God cut us off forever? Is does God even paying attention to our problems anymore? And I assure you, God cares. He cares because He told you He cares. Now, Any one of us would would love to have this characteristic of David that he's a man after God's own heart. All of us have the assurance that God has made with us an unbreakable oath. And David himself would say, when, when that 89th Psalm also has bearing when David would say, though my house be not so with God. Yet hath He made with me an everlasting covenant according to all points and sure. We're all familiar with the sin, though, that plagued David's life. The sin of Bathsheba and murdering her husband, Uriah. But that's not what we're going to deal with today. What we're going to deal with is found in First Chronicles 21. It's actually found in First Chronicles 21, and it's also found in Second uh, Samuel 24. But in First Chronicles 21, we have the sin of David numbering Israel. In, in your Bible reading, have you ever read about David numbering the nation of Israel? taking a census of the nation of Israel. And uh, the plague that resulted in that and 70,000 people died from David numbering the nation of Israel. This is First Chronicles 21. Now, <clears throat> I've heard a few sermons on this. Um, sometimes folks focus on the fact that David was a man of war and he is... Numbering the nation of Israel so he'll have a count properly of how many people go to war, and it was wrong for him to do that. Well, I give you half credit for that. Because when you read in the New Testament, Jesus says, which of you doesn't first count the cost in doing something? And there's, there's a couple of examples he gives, and one thing is building a building. He says, which of you doesn't first count the cost to make sure that you have enough funds to complete the building when you start the process? He, the, the other example that Jesus gives is, or which of you being a king doesn't first count the cost in going to war if he have such and such number of men to face somebody else? Which I mean, it's important to know in some instances how many people you have on your side is what Jesus is saying. That's just reasonable. But it's not altogether the only reason to make a decision. Because two months ago when we were looking at David and Saul's conflict with each other, one thing that we pointed out in that 
is that Saul had so many problems because he was just making his decisions. He would make a decision that was right with him, and he'd do it, and it failed. When he's pursuing David, David was constantly calling for Samuel the prophet to bring the ephod, and Samuel would come to David, and David would inquire of the Lord what to do, and every single time, God would say, go do this, you will win, do not do that, you will lose, and David did what God told him to do. So, you know, whether you're David going off to battle against Saul or Philistines or Amalekites, or whether, uh, you know, you're in the book of Judges and there's Gideon. Gideon uh, went to battle one time and he started out with uh, 32,000 men, I think. I think it was about 32,000. And God said, you've got too many. And and what do you mean i got too many? And he says, well, all those fearful and afraid got, go home. And that got rid of about 22,000 people. And, and Gideon was left with 10,000. And then God said, you still got too many. He finally whittled that thing down to 300 men, and God said, you've got enough to accomplish this task. I'm not sure what math God is using, but that's not right. Because by the time Gideon runs down to 300 men, he's outnumbered like 450 to 1. And God says, you've got enough. Probably because God knows that one man with God is a majority. It was Elijah who told his little servant, Go outside. Don't worry about that army who's come to arrest us. You go outside and you look in the mountains. There are more that be with us than be with them. And when he went outside, he saw the heavens and the mountains full of angels and flaming chariots. David did not have to have the nation of Israel numbered to go to war. It was not an unwise thing to have them numbered, but in this case, he didn't have to have them numbered. I don't think that's why God was angry at him that he was numbering them for war. Because when you read through 1 Chronicles 21, or you read through 2 Samuel 24, there's some parallels that keep coming up and there are words that keep coming up. The term plague comes up a number of times. And also, I believe it's here in, in the end of chapter 21. I want, uh, yeah, uh, There's reference here at the end of 21 made to the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness. This is verse 29. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of the burnt offering were at that season in the high place in Gibeon, and so forth and so on. Uh, there's a reference here that's made to Moses in the tabernacle. So there's a reference to a plague. There's a reference to Moses in this tabernacle. And I think this is why God is angry with David. And the answer is found in Exodus chapter 30. So if you won't mind, turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. When you find it, say amen. Why does a turkey farm on Thanksgiving? Amen. <laughs> One more. Here we go. Exodus chapter 30. Here's what happens. The Lord spake unto Moses. This is verse 11. Exodus 30, verse 11. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying... When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. God is telling Moses how to number the, the nation of Israel. He's telling him the proper way to do this. Moses, when you number everybody, and by the way, uh, 
the numbering of the people of Israel is going to be everybody 20 years and older. Oh, and by the way, when David numbers them, it's only going to be the men that he numbers. There's a lot of argument, and I'm, I'm going to kind of step out of this for a little bit because there's a, a thought that occurred to me the other day, but there's a lot of argument among the world around us as to who's more important in the Bible, the men or the women? Neither one. Depends on what task you want done is which one's more important. I wish people had enough sense to read instead of argue. Because they'll look at this and they'll say, well, uh, the Bible says that the man is supposed to be the pastor. The man is supposed to be the preacher. It's very plain. And Paul talk, told Timothy, the man is the head of the house. He's to love his wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Very plain. Well, what role do the women have then? That's not fair. You're leaving the women out. Okay. There's, there's several times that the women got left out. Specifically, when God judged the nation of, of Egypt, and he killed their firstborn. He killed the firstborn males. When God judged Israel a lot of times. You know who got judged? The men. 70,000 men died because of David's problem of numbering the nation of Israel. Now which do you think is unfair? Shall we just continue then? Notice what is supposed to happen when Moses numbers the nation of Israel. When you take the psalm that there be no plague, notice verse 13. This they shall give. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered hath a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras, and a half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Well, that cleared it up fairly well, didn't it? A shekel is twenty geras. In our day and age, According to our monetary standards, a shekel would be about the equivalent of 32 cents. But they're giving a half a shekel as a ransom for their life. They're giving 16 cents. Now, when you count up the number of people, though, within this little uh, passage of Scripture here, that paid this ransom, I think it ended up, I think the kids and I added up as about $193,000 that they would have taken in. You know, 16 cents can be a lot after a while, right? Notice what happens here, though. Verse 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. The atonement that is made here is the same for the rich and for the poor. And I find it also interesting that a lot of times when God required the nation of Israel to give, he would speak in percentages like a tenth was to be given. A, a, the tithe was a tenth. It was a percentage so that there was no undue hardship on anyone. Uh, a percentage, a 10% percentage is equal across the board for everybody. It doesn't matter if you've got $10 or $10,000. 10% is an equal amount. But this is a specific amount. So that could be burdensome. 
if the amount had to be $20 and you only had 10 you're in a mess. But I'd like you to also notice this and contemplate this, that the poor were to give the same amount as the rich. You say, well, the rich could have thrown that in and been very happy with it. From their standpoint of looking at it, they gave the same amount, but I can give 16%. It doesn't matter. But in God's standpoint, you rich ain't no different from the poor. You're all sinners, just alike, and you all have a six by six by four box you're going to be buried in one day. The ransom to be made for everybody was the same price. You catch that? So in other words, when you go to heaven, you're going to go to heaven because of one reason. The death of Jesus Christ. You're not going to go to heaven because you were an infant and you died in your infancy. You're not going to go to heaven because you were mentally retarded and you could not comprehend what the preacher was saying, so God lets you go on innocence. You're not going to go to heaven because you were on the backside of a jungle somewhere and the the preacher hadn't gotten to you with the gospel and so you get to go on the basis of ignorance. You're going to go to heaven on one reason and one reason only, the blood of Christ. You weren't purchased with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're poor, rich, black or white. Male or female. And it doesn't matter. Your sins are no less important than the sins of your neighbor. Both of you had to be paid for by the blood of Christ. The ransom is a specific amount. It's the ransom of the blood of Christ. And the problem that David had was David wanted to do it his way. We're going to see here in this little chapter here that David's problem was a problem of pride. In 1 Chronicles 21, David said to Joab in verse 2, uh, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 2, David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba, even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people an hundred times so many more as they be. But my lord the king, are they not all, thy, all my lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? And I, I think that what, Joab's not often known for his spirituality. Joab is known uh, for the fact he wants to administer, administer justice. Joab was angry at David because David would not deal properly with Absalom. And Joab was the one who, who slew Absalom when uh, Absalom rode along on the mule, and Absalom's long, flowy hair got caught in the tree. Joab was there to cast those three darts into, into Absalom's heart. Absalom's ready to punish anyone and everybody that disobeyed the Lord. He's not very well known for all of his spiritual insight, though, but he does hit the nail on the head here saying, the, the Lord can multiply these people like he multiplied bread in the wilderness. The Lord can make the enemy see far more than you ever thought. And these people follow you wherever you go anyways, David. None of them are against you. All you've got to do is say, let's go to war, and they'll go, and probably a handful more will pick up and go with them. 
But in verse 4 it says, Nevertheless, the king's words prevailed against Joab. At the end, uh, it doesn't tell you here in First Chronicles, but it does tell you in Second Samuel 24, that at the end of nine months, this census took nine months, and at the end of that nine months, we pick up here that Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And as soon as he gave the census and the numbering of Israel to David, David's heart smote him. He'd known, he'd done the wrong thing. God was displeased with David for this. Not that David numbered Israel. I'm trying to make that point plain because God already showed Moses in Exodus that you could number them, but that David didn't do what he was told. He didn't do it God's way. And isn't that David's problem a lot in his life? When David went and fetched the Ark of the Covenant from the hand of the Philistines, how did David bring it back to Israel? He set it on those two staves and the high priest carried it in front of him. That's not what he did, did he? He set it on a new cart. Or the Philistines set it on a new cart and ran it out of their town. David just picked up the cart and carried it on with him. And then they got to the threshing floor and the, the ox stumbled and the ark looked like it was going to fall off the cart. And Uzzah was standing right next to it and he put his hand up to steady the ark and God struck him dead. And David was very displeased. See, the band was playing that day and David was dancing and twirling before the Lord and they were singing happy songs because they got the ark back, but they weren't carrying it the proper way. Remember that? God struck Uzzah dead, rained on the parade, Mess that you just don't want me to have any fun in life, God. That's all it is. You're just a mean, ugly God. Don't want me to have any fun. And yet David never at that time said, uh, Israel, I think we did this wrong. Never at any time. He blamed God rather than himself. David was an individual who liked to do things his way. When you look also through this, God says here, or David says in verse 8, I've sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I've done very foolishly. Uh, yeah, I'd agree, David. You've done very foolishly. He said the same thing in... Uh, in Second Samuel 24, I have done very foolishly. But I'd like for you to also notice this. In Second Samuel 24, uh, in verse 10, he says, I have done very foolishly. But then he says in verse 17 of Second Samuel 24, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. I'll agree, David, you did something foolishly. But when we experience regret over our sin, it's more than just being foolish. Children are foolish. The Bible tells us that foolishness is found in the heart of a child. Children do things foolishly. They do things out of ignorance. They do things out of uh, childlike innocence sometimes. We as adults don't really do things foolishly. 
We do, we do some wicked, sinful stuff is what we do. Because as grown as we are, and as in tune with God as David was, he didn't do things foolishly. This was not a foolish thing. This was a wicked thing. This was an offensive thing. This was an abominable thing. What David gets to see here uh, throughout this chapter is the sword of the Lord in the hand of an angel spread out over the city of Jerusalem. And that, that, that reminded me, the sword of the Lord in the hand of an angel? When Balaam was on his way to go to Balak in Numbers 22, what stopped the animal? The animal saw an angel standing in the way with his sword drawn. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God ran them out of the garden, what do we find there in the last few verses of chapter 3 of Genesis? But that God put two cherubims there in the garden and a flaming sword to guard the way of the tree. Gideon told his men, when you finally got to 300, stand up here on top of the mountain and when you hear the trumpet blast, break your lanterns, blow your trumpets and shout the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And then we remember there's that story of that angel who in one night killed 185,000 soldiers of King Sennacherib's army with his sword. These angels ain't nothing to be played with. They're dangerous. They're not anything to be joked about. People talk about my guardian angel, my guardian angel. Your guardian angel might have been on the way to cut your head off. If it weren't for God, in this instance, standing in the way. Who finally looked at the angel and said, that's enough. Put your sword back in your sheath. Be done. David finally gets down to a point where a ransom will eventually be made. Uh, he's going to go to uh, a man named Ornan. Last half of this chapter here, we're in First Chronicles 21. The last portion of this chapter is that David goes to a man named Ornan, verse 23. And David goes down there and he says in verse 23, I give the, uh, well, excuse me, let's back up. Verse 22, David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it to me for a full price that the plague may be saved from the people. David now is going to erect an altar, going to make a sacrifice. He's going to pay this man also a certain number of shekels for his field and for his oxen and for all his wood. David's going to kind of now come in the back end of this and do it right. A ransom is going to be made. Sacrifice is going to be made. The plague is going to be stayed. I'd like you to notice something also here. Ornan's a good man. Ornan says in verse 23, and he said to David, Take it to thee and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. Hey, he's a good man. King comes to him and says, I, I want this property. I want some of your stuff. I need to make an offering for it. And the king says, hey, this, uh, Ornan says, this is a great thing. I'll just give it to you. Like you notice what David says here. King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, 
nor offer burnt offerings without cost. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read 2 Samuel 24, he says, I will not offer unto the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Listen to me very carefully. There are a lot of people that fill our churches nowadays that want their service and discipleship to God to cost them nothing. They want their sacrifice to God to cost them nothing. They want God to bless them, but they don't want to have to sacrifice or give anything up. I don't want to have to sacrifice my ideas. I don't want to have to sacrifice my practices. I don't want it to cost me a thing. And I, I've heard this. See, I've been, I've been pestering people now for 20 years or more. 24 years. Good. Great. Day in the morning. I've been pestering people now nearly 25 years. And I've heard on a number of occasions, I can't stand it when I go to the church. They're always asking for more money. And yet, down in the lunchroom, they're always talking about, good grief, you see how much cable went up this month? i got to pay more for my cable. My phone bill just went through the roof. I can't believe how much i got to pay for my phone bill. Great day in the morning. Gas is $3.5 a gallon. And no complaining about that. Other than complaining about what you got to pay. But I'm not going back to church because they always want more money. Well, you think these lights run on love? What do you think this building was built out of? Kindness and generosity? Of course the church should ask for money. You get the benefit of sitting in an air-conditioned building with lights on to illuminate my beautiful countenance. The deacons ought not have to sweat when they make bill payments, right? Ooh, got real quiet on that one. I'm confident that the reason a lot of our churches don't like to hear about ministerial support and giving and whether tithing is appropriate or not. I've heard people argue about whether or not tithing is appropriate or not. In other words, we're going to argue about whether or not it's right to give to God is what I want to ask. Well, we're not under the 10% tithe. From a legalistic standpoint, any money you give is given in a percentage. If 10% in the Old Testament was good enough for God and you got it better in the New Testament, why do you think less than 10% would be satisfactory to God? Ask yourself that question. Because your waitress wants 15 or 18 now or 25. They offered me 25% Friday night. How much do you pay your waitress? More or less than you pay God. See, it's interesting. It's just interesting the things that people fight about in life. It's interesting the people, the things that people fuss over in life and stumble over in life. Listen, David said, "I'm not going to offer anything to God that doesn't cost me something." Our discipleship to God at times is going to cost us something, and it costs us friends, costs us family. It may cost you a job. Nowadays, that last one is a little more real than it was a couple of years ago, isn't it? David wanted to number the nation of Israel, but he wanted to do it his way. 
and in doing it his way without taking a ransom that was going to cost Israel nothing. In the end, it cost them 70,000 people. One of the things that I like about this, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here a little bit. I know you all think I've gone over an hour, but I haven't. I started late. Um, one of the things that, that is interesting about this, as God, read through the chapter. Read through First Chronicles. Read through Second Samuel. And David will eventually appeal to God, and he will say, I'm the one that did this. Don't make these other people suffer for what I did. And you know, that's, that's one of the... You know a person is growing in grace and in their discipleship when that's the way they're talking. When they're saying, our singing stinks at church because I'm not singing well enough. Not he's not leading good enough. The other crowd is not singing well enough. The singing stinks because I'm not singing well enough. The preaching stinks at church. I mean, it's just really dry because the Holy Spirit is not wedding my land. The, the, the preaching is a problem because I'm not praying enough for the Lord to open my heart and my eyes to understand it. An immature Christian wants to blame everybody else for all the problems that are going on. David says to the Lord, he says, I, I'm the one that did this. It's my fault. But David looks at the, at the Lord and he says, read it. These people thy sheep. Why should they suffer for what I've done? David says, thy sheep, these people. Uh, what did Moses say when he went to strike the rock? When we read about Moses, what did he say? Ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? He didn't refer to them as the people of God, the sheep of God, the nation of God. He said, you rebels. No, David said, the only rebel in this case is me. It, it doesn't matter in my life how solid I've been in the past. It doesn't matter how well grounded I've been. At times, I'm, I'm a little bit like David. Uh, I've got my way of doing it. And that's the way I want it done. I've got my pride. And I want it done my way. When God had told Abraham, he said, you'll have a chosen seed. You'll have a chosen son. We know that son to eventually be Isaac. But when God told Abraham that, that was right after Hagar had conceived and given him Ishmael. And Abraham said, Lord, there's no sense in you going through all that. Just Bless Ishmael. Just take what I've already done and bless Ishmael. And so often I think people are kind of like that. They, they don't really want to sacrifice. They don't want God to do any more. Just take what I've already done and bless it and we're just going down the road. No. David says, we didn't do it right to start with. We need to stay the plague. We'll give to the Lord what the Lord requires. We're going about our day. The Bible reminds us that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. The Bible does not say that pride goeth before the fall. Go back and read that scripture. It does not say that. It said pride goeth before destruction. 
and a haughty spirit before a fire. I think we can see that in David's life here. David would not listen to Joab. Joab tried to entreat him uh, gracefully and tried to teach him properly. David said, no, I'm the king and I'm going to have it my way. And I think so often, so many times we feel like to be the king of our own life. It's about time that we abdicate the throne in our own life, don't you think? And let the true king of Israel, the king of glory, take his rightful place. Thank you for your kind and patient attention.